Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I would not go to an AA meeting and talk about this because, because I respect someone's hard-fought sobriety. I respect that, and I would never suggest someone start drinking. I'll give this a try. No, if you can get to, to sobriety in your way and it's palatable and you can do it, great. But I do support the idea of free will. We have a pill now. It's 78% effective. You don't have to feel shame. You don't have to feel like a failure. This pill will help you make decisions and make it easier. And it's not that it ruins the rush or makes wine awful or whatever. Some people have different responses, but most people report that it they just lose interest and they're able to leave a half a glass of wine at dinner and walk away and not feel like they have to finish it, you know, chug it down before you leave, get your money's worth. You don't have that anymore. That goes away. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today, I have Dr. Michelle Perrone. Dr. Michelle Perrone is a clinical supervisor, a private international addiction coach, counselor, speaker, and the author of Tools for Life. She has worked in the field of addiction for over 15 years. Her experience includes working with groups, individuals in the critical stages of detox to high-intensity inpatient, intensive outpatient, outpatient, extended care, aftercare, adolescent care, medication-assisted treatment, telehealth care, and TSM coaching. In this episode, we talk about the unusual path that brought her to work in the addiction field and the cutting-edge treatment that presents a path to drinking moderation to many who have struggled with addiction. While this might sound impossible to those like myself who had a different path to recovery, it offers another option for some of those who struggle with addiction. It's really interesting stuff, and some of which challenged my own ideas. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Michelle Perrone, who also runs a moderation management program at Lion Rock Recovery. If you're interested in that, check out Health Balance. Without further ado, let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to come. It's exciting to be on Courage to Change. I've listened many times and I really appreciate what you do here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's uh, it's definitely been a labor of love. And I love having people like you on who have an expertise and a personal story because I think it really, it's a beautiful combination and your story is really interesting, something different, another way that people are getting help. So I'm excited to talk about that and let's dive in a little bit about your background. I want to start with, you've been married to two alcoholics. So let's start with that. Yes. One, I was very young and foolish and fresh out of high school. And well, I guess I was in college at the time. So I just had a very immature outlook on things. I, as I look back now, I can see I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared. He was 20 years older than me and a doctor pilot racing car driver loved me. Oh my gosh. For, Sounds amazing. Yeah. So uh, as a, you know, a codependent afraid of my yeah. own shadow, that was a big deal. So I could vicariously get him feel important and feel bigger than myself because I was married to this man. And how did that, did you know he was an alcoholic at the time? Did you know anything about alcoholism? No, I knew nothing about it at the time. That sort of un- uncovered itself over the two-year marriage. And it became like the, the big glasses of wine at the end of the day in bed. And he was grumpy most of the time. And and I had to find something else to do with my time. So I became a bodybuilder and we just grew apart. And it just got from bad to worse and lots of arguments. And, and then I had to pack my bags and come home. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in a really small town, Bessemer, Michigan. Yeah. And I was very shy and I was very afraid of myself. And 
I was one of the few girls who went seven hours away to Michigan State University and everyone thought I'd stay home and be afraid of myself. And I went and did this thing. And and it was actually liberating for me to start to understand that I didn't have to be afraid of my own shadow. So it was a big transition. That's really interesting that you to hear that you were afraid of your own shadow because knowing you today and all the things that you've done and accomplished seems it's so funny to me how so often I meet people and the person that they are today, the person I meet is not the person that other people, you know, would have imagined when you yeah. were growing up because you've you've done so many things, uh, one of which is being a bodybuilder. How long were you doing that? So I got into bodybuilding as a result of feeling disconnected from my husband at the time. I started going to the gym. I made friends in the gym. I did it for about three years and I got in with a group of people who were competing. So I got a partner, I got a trainer, but the ironic about it is that I was overweight and very insecure in high school. And then when I finally did put on a bikini, I I went on stage and had judges tell me how I looked at it. I love it. I love, I love it. The, uh, I love, I love the contrast, right. Of, of our lives, like where, it, where things take us, you know, and, and trying to escape or, or different coping mechanisms. And what's cool to hear is that your coping mechanism, you had a lot of coping mechanisms and maybe some of them were dysfunctional, maybe, oh, yeah. but they, but they're interesting, right? You're coping. You got really into the gym. You got, you know, you ended up rest, it, owning restaurants. Like your coping mechanisms were different. They looked different. They probably had feelings of powerlessness and fe- feelings of out of control, but yes. they looked different than using the substance, right? And, yes. and you were around a lot of people who use the substance, but your coping mechanisms are very creative, so to speak. Well, I see that as externalizing what I couldn't deal with on the inside mm-hmm. rather than turning to a substance. I had to be, I had to recreate myself in something bigger and better and different and unique. So I would find that I was irreplaceable. That was the big mm-hmm. thing because I felt felt so invisible as a child in my family of origin that I, I was like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. We, get, we say Fred Astaire is a great dancer. No one gives credit to Ginger Rogers who did everything backwards and in high heels. Right. And so that was your, your mission was finding these ways to be seen. Yes. What were some of the biggest sort of coping or, 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 or externalizations of your issues that you ended up working through? I used to call it hopping from stone to stone, but I would go from relationship to relationship to relationship. There, like Helen Gurley Brown once said, you always have to date three men, one that you're dating right now, one that you want to date and one that you've dated already. Mm-hmm. So there was always a line, right? I always had one, if I was going to break up with someone, there was always someone in the back of my head, or it was always that way because this insecurity of not being enough, not being seen as we carry, I'm not important. I don't matter then I mattered if I saw my reflection in someone else's eyes, then I knew I existed. That was like abject codependency, right? Like I can't be on my own. I'll, I'll just disappear. Yeah. I, I relate to that a lot. I relate to that a lot. I was in a relationship where, where I describe like, it's the weirdest feeling and I couldn't explain it in a logical way. But I, I remember feeling like if we break up, I won't be able to breathe. Yes. Not like metaphorically. Like I literally won't be able to, my lungs will stop working. Just a weird, even though you know that that's not true. And it's, you're right. It's that, you know, if I don't exist, if I don't, if this person doesn't think highly of me, then because I don't think highly of myself, then there's no reason for me. Exactly. And I have never been left in a relationship because I can't be left. It's too devastating. So I preempt it. That's another coping skill. Like, oh, I'm bored now. So I per- I withdraw because I have that avoidant attachment style. Withdraw, mm-hmm. which is pretty easy, compartmentalize it and walk away. And so there are a series of relationships, each one getting better, but right. yep. still having still having that angst. And I've been single now for 20 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm still practicing. <laughs> How did you get to the place where you know you eventually became a therapist? How did you become a therapist? How did you find that that through all of this? <laughs> when I was married to my second husband, who was an alcoholic drug ha- drug addict in, in complete denial, when I had a baby, my son was born with a VSD or a hole between his ventricles. He needed open heart surgery by the time he was four and a half months old, or he wouldn't have survived the first winter. 
So when he went to surgery, there was a, a hiccup or a glitch, if you will. His his liver filled with blood and got too big to, to push back in and Oof. close. So the doctor came to me because she, we had a, a go-between doctor that would tell us what was going on during the surgery. And when she came to us and said, well, there's a problem. They don't really know. They're going to look, but we're going to have to redose him to keep his heart turned off. And of course, I was like tearful for the whole six-hour thing. I was yeah. so scared I couldn't breathe. So I decided I have, to, I have to pray. I have to go. I have to pray. So I went down to the chapel and I sat in the chapel and I promised everything to him for him mm -hmm. to leave. I promised I'll do anything you ask me to. Just please let him live. Please let him live. Like when I got done and I felt more calm, I went back to the waiting room and she came out and said, oh, miraculously, this cleared up. So we're going to sew him back up. Everything looks really good. It's going to be great. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. God wants you to keep his promises though, because, because, or keep your promises. Because what happened next was I didn't do what I was asked. I kept staying in the restaurant business and staying in the restaurant business. So it became uncomfortable. And the harder I tried, the worse things got till the bankruptcy mm. happened. And it was $1.2 million. Like I didn't learn this lesson at a hundred thousand or 500,000. I'd keep going 800. Nope. That's not a, a million dollars. Come on now. Have you lost your mind? No, I needed to stay in there for a million too. I don't know, even dozen in my head, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. So finally, when I reached my ultimate implosion, if you will, I was on my knees and I was praying in my room. And at that point I had an Al-Anon sponsor because I had gone through the divorce. And I said, if there is a God, change me, change my life. And I didn't care what it was, but it wasn't going to be what it was that day before I declared the bankruptcy. It was like, I just, I need out. Yeah. So I cried. I fell asleep. I woke up the next day. I did not have my business that I was very much identified with. Mm. I did not have my home. And because I lived in the restaurant with my children, we also lost that. And then the car blew, blew the oil didn't get watched because I was distracted and the engine blew. So I was homeless, had no car, had two children, no job, no income. And that was what that, that was the, all right, you need to follow through with what you promised me. That's what he was asking. I know that now looking back, that's exactly the moment because of my work in Al-Anon, people kept saying, oh, you're getting this. I'm like, you have such good wisdom. You got to do something with that. Mm, what do I do with that? So my sponsor got me a volunteering effort to go and teach in our local jail. So I went for three years and I talked about the 12 steps. It was a class more or less. It wasn't an AA meeting by any means, but it was the ideas behind the 12 steps. Those people asked me, can you write this down and get us some handouts? Sure. Wrote it down. It became a book. The inmates edited the book. I came back I cleaned it up and that's what started everything. I took that book to different treatment centers. They said, gee, you can't come and talk to these people unless you're licensed. How do I do that? Went to school, got licensed, it all worked out. I worked in construction while I went to school. How did you work in construction? Literally, like you worked on a job site? Oh, absolutely. I was a do-it-yourselfer, DIY. So Yay. I got a tile saw and I knew how to sand and paint and do all that. And that's what I did. I did roofing. I did tile work. I finished every, like, that's what I did to put food on the table. That's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. I, I, I guess I'm not surprised you can do it. I'm surprised people hired you. Yes. That's, that's the piece. I had a little business card that said my two cents. And I would just go in, I'd faux finish walls and do whatever they asked. I put in a sink. Things got bigger as I went along. And then finally yeah. got a job and was working in construction. And so today I still have my tile saw in the garage just in case all hell breaks loose. And I, I can't do this. That's my exactly. backup. Right. So you you did construction and and through school and, mm -hmm. and then became a therapist. Mm -hmm. And what so in that process, like if we go back a little bit. What work did you do through, like, where was your healing? Was it while you were in school? Did you do this? Did you do your healing leading up to that desire to actually go to school? Like where in that? The healing happened for me after the divorce. Someone came into my restaurant when it was still open and I started befriending him and he was older and a nice gentleman. And he said, you know, you need to go to an Al-Anon meeting. I'm like, what's that? He's like, come on, I'll take you. So I went to my first meeting and I ended up going for three years, had an absolutely wonderful sponsor. For people who don't know what Al-Anon is, can you just give them a little note asterisk of what that, of what Al-Anon is? 
Sure. It's for family members of people who have been affected by alcoholism. So in my life with two husbands, it didn't come from the family. However, my mother's father, my grandfather, whom I never knew was an alcoholic. So my mother had that codependency happening. And then I grew up and, and attracted to alcoholics. So my codependency got blossomed. Sins of the father repeat on the child, right? <laughs> so that's where I was unhappy. So when I when that person recognized the way I was speaking and took me, then I had, I went three times a week, sometimes four, and then uh, and that and I made the time for it. And those were the people who really helped me go from that adolescent mindset or that teenage mindset into what I felt like. I I feel like an adult now. Like at the end of that process, I feel like an adult now. I can actually make decisions, and I'm not afraid of everything. And that's what really turned things around. So I'm I am forever grateful to the people in Al-Anon who helped me pick myself up and understand a greater idea to my life, a better, a better focus, a more competent. So on the way out, I didn't borrow any money from anybody to restart my life. I did it on my own. And I'm very proud of that. I put myself back together and I created my own personal wealth at this point on my own. Like I didn't get not a penny, not a loan at the bank. I did it. That's amazing. It's amazing. And I love that you, I love how you describe Al Anon, which is a 12 step program. As you know, I guess I would call it like a sister program to AA, mm-hmm. but I don't know that that's the right term. But I love that you said it took you to made you a grown up because I felt that too. Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 step, the, the people there more so than anything else, they gave me the ability to, to, to move from that adolescent mindset to be yeah. an adult. And even aging, right? I don't think that the act of just aging helped with that for me. I think it was that work that I did has given me tools to grow much more easily and seamlessly than than other people that I know. So I Mm -hmm. I really love that that explanation and that description. You you have this expertise in a really interesting part of uh, substance use disorder treatment. And it's something, especially coming from a place that, you know, where I got sober, which was so abstinence based, it's, you know, it's taboo, right? It's taboo to talk about moderation. It's taboo to talk about any type of recovery that, that doesn't include abstinence. And I have had the privilege of learning, you know, almost forcing an open mind, right? Because so much of how I got sober was, you know, we talk about like brainwashing. Well, my brain needed washing, right? My brain needed to be shaped and molded and I needed to have no thoughts of my own for a period of time. Like that was what I needed. And no Ashley's thoughts out the window. This is what you think, do think. And that was successful for me. That's what worked. But there's a point in time, right? Where you start to open up a little bit more and it's scary. (sighs) And so I've had the pleasure of learning about this and learning and seeing people get well in different ways than I did, in ways that I was told that wouldn't work. And interestingly, ways that didn't work for me when I tried them myself. So it's been really cool. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you're doing and why you're so passionate about it and you know some of the information? Well, as you know, I run a group here at Lion Rock and I absolutely adore the group because I've been able to expand it and add to it and learn more and really open it up mm-hmm. so that, and also teach all of our counselors, this other way, this other yes. mindset, this other, uh, like not one size fits all treatment. And I have seen miracles happen in the groups um, because people come in guilty, fearful, shameful, going, oh my God, what is this? They're all tentative. They're watching what's happening. And over time, because I use a lot of positive psychology work in that and help them understand the mindset of shifting from one place to another. And over time, they just blossom. And I've had many people, believe it or not, come to the moderation group and choose abstinence and stay in the group in abstinence because they just love the group and they love Mm. the conversation. Cool. Yes. I've had, I've had in the last six months, probably four or five people, and there are about 35 people in the program now, about four or five people just in my group alone have chosen abstinence. Interesting. And they stay in the group. So, and they stay in the group. I always say like, you're in the wrong group, but no, they're enjoying it. They like the input. They like the ease of being that it brings. They don't feel guilty for their thoughts and they can talk about, you know, their consumption, which is what we do, because what we do is we learn the skills. We learn the behavior around the physiology. And we undo that. And then we we also 
create a gray area where there's some flexibility, knowing what the boundaries are or what we call the goals. And then we work towards the goal, but you're not judged if you can't reach that goal in the first week. I usually watch people for six to eight weeks. And if, they're, if their goals are not being met, then we sit down and have the conversation about Naltrex on the TSM. And then if that is not an acceptable thing, then we will frequently move people over to IOP and abstinence-based treatment. So the beauty about Lion Rock, which makes it exceptional, is that we have professional counselors, not coaches, but counselors, and we can move people from IOP to health balance or back again or start to help balance and move. So either way, there's no wrong door to come in. There's no one right. size fits all. And many people do IOP first, we're finding now, and then they move to health balance. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so let's let's back this for people who don't know, let's back this up. Some of the terminology IOP is intensive outpatient treatment for substance use disorder, mm-hmm. health balance. So Lion Rock Recovery has IOP, which is abstinence-based, intensive outpatient treatment. And then health balance is your moderation program that yes. you run. And there are a couple different ways to do it. Um, TSM is the Sinclair method. Mm-hmm which I'll let you get into and talk about. But this, so the health balance is the moderation program. When people come in, so I know there's different terminology. When people come in, do you require a period of abstinence in the beginning of of the program? We used to do that originally, but I found, yeah, originally we did. We asked them to take 30 days and over time, then that bumped down to two weeks. And then sometimes that wasn't doable. So it's like, come in how you are. And we'll help you from there. I have a question about that. So I, my thought was, if you come in and you can't manage two weeks without drinking, four weeks without drinking, that's indicative of a problem. And that is almost the learning experience where mm-hmm. we say, okay, like you're in this program for moderation, but we start like this. And then we go into the moderation. If you eliminate that, is that ignoring the fact that someone isn't able to stop drinking for a period of time that they're committing to? No, actually, I thought the same thing having watched this over and over. Like I thought I've been in this field for 15 years. So yeah. this niche of moderation, I had to learn as much as I could about it in order to bring the best of what I knew to the group. And I thought the same thing. I thought, wow, we can't take someone who's drinking daily and make moderation work. This is impossible. But what I find is... If we have a daily drinker, I would like them to be on the Sinclair method. We'll start there. And that physiologically, they will begin to disconnect themselves from the alcohol. But the mindset, the bigger half, the bigger part of this is the mindset around alcohol. And as they listen and hear their peers, there's a transformation. And I have seen daily drinkers go, I'm no kidding, go to either non-drinkers or moderated drinkers within two or three weeks because they let. there's this backwards opposite thinking. Like as soon as I don't have to feel guilty about this or pressed, or there's a rush or an, or a an urgency to it. Somehow, some of the folks let it go. Now, that's most of them. However, I do have clients who can't, right? And I'll watch them for a period of time. And if their drinking is high volume and high frequency, and they're I'm not, they're not getting that. You can watch over time, and then I will refer them to either you. You absolutely, I'm going to professionally recommend that you go on naltrexone, or you need to go into the IOP and really take some time off, be abstinent for three months. Try our IOP program, we our, our intensive program. It'll be great for you. You'll you'll hear other people's stories, and then. If they want to come back, they're welcome to come back. But that's, I think, the benefit of having a professional licensed counselor as opposed to a coach on this, right? Because you can see when people are in trouble or they're physiologically compromised or their health dangerous levels. I've seen people drink at dangerous levels like, wow, I'm not I'm not going to watch you drink yourself to death. Right. I'm not going right. to enable you. So at this juncture, I think it's best for you while you may have had two or three days in the last three weeks of not drinking, I'd like to see that improve. So they get a warning. We have a conversation, more of a compassionate suggestion, right? And then, and I have to say, most people do grasp it and, and then put in the work. Can you talk a little bit about now for people who don't know what naltrexone is and also the Sinclair method? Can you talk a little bit about what you do and what that is? So naltrexone is a medication. It's an antagonist. So it like it's not an opioid. It's not addictive. 
it, but it acts in the same area as an opioid drug would act, right? But it, think of it, if you've heard of Narcan, which is used for heroin overdose, it harshes your mellow overnight. <laughs> I like- Overnight, in 10 seconds. <laughs> 10 seconds, and people get really grumpy and guilty. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's right. a real bummer. Yeah, so now Trexone is like the weaker, weaker cousin of Narcan. Okay. Okay. So you, you do you, is it a shot? Is it a, is it a pill? How do you ingest it? So it's a pill for most people doing TSM. However, it is available as Vivitrol as an injection monthly as well. Um, not as effective because it, it titrates down over time. You metabolize it down. So people have often told me it after two or three weeks, it's not as effective in that fourth week. They they're grinning and bearing it. And it's kind of hard, but naltrexone, you take that. And in the United States, most physicians, prescribe it 50 milligram tablet, which is what it comes in once a day, every day for cravings. They will also prescribe it to take it in the morning. But the research through Dr. Sinclair indicates naltrexone gets metabolized off the receptor in six hours. So if you take it at seven in the morning, by four in the afternoon, your witching hour, you're, when you start craving, it's not going to do much about it. So relapse is high. And the other downside is that it mutes, taking it daily mutes your emotional range. So I've had people with a flat affect taking naltrexone daily. And then when they start learning TSM and they start doing it that way, instead where they only take the pill on the days they drink and they take it at the witching hour, about an hour before they start drinking, all of a sudden when they have days off, their personality just blossoms. You start to see who they are again. They start mm. laughing more and they're more animated and they're just different. So if you do it the Sinclair method, that is taking that same pill, taking it an hour before you would drink as usual. And now a lot of people are of the belief that you take it as usual and just drink. Like you, you have a starting point for drinking, but there's free for all. Like after that, you know, sky's the limit. I can drink what I want. But what we teach in our program, which I think we have so much success, is that moderate drinkers think about their drinking. They don't just go and it's a free for all and they just hmm. drink all night or they just can can spontaneously drink two or three drinks because that's how they're made. No, it's a conscious choice. So I like people to effort, not at a nine or 10 on a scale of one to 10, but maybe a three or four that I can manage that. But if I have cravings that are stronger than that, like five or six or seven, then take my pill and have a drink. That's okay. But you don't take your pill and have 27 drinks. You take your pill and you can have your two or three. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships and recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. All the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so so let's let's break this down just a little bit because you know people listening to this are the and and I've I've had I've talked about the Sinclair method before. TSM is the Sinclair method. Mm -hmm. So I want to give you like what the opposition would sound like. And then, you know, cause I, I know about TSM, but I want to give you what the opposition would sound like and hear the rationale. So the, so the thought is, okay, so I'm supposed to take a pill and then drink an hour later. Aren't I just like, if I have to take a pill to drink, does that make that okay? Isn't that just adding more complexity into my problem? 
if I'm going to take a pill to drink and it changes how I feel about drinking, how is it possible that I'm going to continue to take this pill? So all the, all the arguments that come in, the skepticism, the like, why am I using pharmaceuticals to drink? How does that make me better? And if, if I'm a family member too, right? If my husband's going in and, and this is this is the solution of like, well, they told him to take a pill and then drink. I'm going to freak out, right? So yeah. how, how do you how do you quell the, the feelings of like, this is absurd? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question, Ashley. Thanks for asking that. Okay. So first of all, we start with that all clients are autonomous. So it's based on your choice making. So do you want to drink? If you are a chronic alcoholic that cannot control your drinking and you still want to drink, this is a solution because the other option is black and white. So if you want that that option to be able to still enjoy a glass of wine with dinner because many people have that, then the way the way that protects you if you will from overdrinking, this pill can help. So is that like it reminds me of when people take Nexium, it's this it's a, this pill for acid reflux Mm -hmm. so that they can eat like really shitty food. And I always think to myself, like your body doesn't want you to drink that you're taking a pill so that you can do that. But, but it's, it's, it's kind of like that. It's like, if you're going to indulge, you're going to reduce these things enough so that there isn't huge damage and so that it can be done very controlled, but it's not, you're not saying it's optimal. You're saying, look, if the person is going to not take this, we have to have another option. Is that right? It's a solution. Yeah, it's definitely a solution. We'll take a lactose pill if we're lactose intolerant. We'll do you know, insulin or, or metformin if we're at the cusp of being diabetic. Like There are pills for many conditions in this human world. And you know, if I was lactose intolerant, I would take the pill because I, I will not stop or give up ice cream. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I live in Wisconsin. I think I'd be kicked out if I didn't eat cheese, right? Yeah. Eat it. <laughs> so if you're compelled, then it becomes okay. This I can do. This I can do. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. It's and also it's also a non-negotiable. Like if you decide that you would like to continue drinking and you're you're up for taking the pill, it's non-negotiable. You don't re-decide. You made a decision in the past tense, just like the first step, right? I made a decision right, right, to right. take this pill before I drink, rather than I made a decision to quit drinking altogether. So you make that decision. It's non-negotiable. You go forward with that. We never talk about compliance because I take it off the table right away. What are some of the other terms that you change in this program? Oh, there are quite a few of them. We don't talk about relapse. We talk about over-drinking episodes because the bottom line is drinking is not the problem. And poof, wow, how can you say drinking is not the problem? Because in truth, in moderation, and those who, who want to be moderate drinkers, over-drinking is the problem. One or two drinks is not going to be life-changing unless, you know, have some crazy kind of reaction to it, one or two drinks. That's usually within limits of moderate drinking, one or two drinks a day for women, not more than two or three days a week. That's it. That's it. If you can live with four drinks a week, you know, some people say, what's the point? Sounds like torture to me. Yeah. But this, this changes it. This changes everything. It's, and I find that probably 60% of people can do this on behavioral skills alone. And then the other 40% of the group at any given time, take or or leave a few will be on the naltrexone. And what's really beautiful about that as people struggle and others come in and say, oh yeah, I've been on it for a month or three months or two months or two years. It's been great for me. Then people go, oh, and they ease. You can see them ease back and go, oh, maybe I should give it a try. And within a few weeks, those that know that they could benefit and they've heard people they know and trust talk about it, then they go, oh, I think I'll try it. So we help them find somebody to supply, to to go to a doctor that will be able to prescribe it in that way. And it really eases the tension around, should I do it? Should I not do it? Does it work? Is Is it a hokey? Is it baloney what is it right and the just like any other recovery group they bond together our our original program was supposed to be 6 to 8 weeks long today mm-hmm. the longest person has been there over 2 years the second <laughs> one has been there a year and a half and they start and they just keep coming they keep coming so we're having to expand and we're adding always adding services and training more counselors to know how to do this so if you were to go to an AA, a group of people who've been sober a long time, you were to go to an AA meeting and they, it was a Q&A and they were just, and they wanted to say, they said to you, why is this a good thing? What, how, how do you explain 
why is this a good thing for people to continue drinking and not do what we're doing? Because I think it appeals to the most basic human desire of free will. We get to choose. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to feel like a failure. No one wants to feel ostracized or separated or different or held in contempt or nobody wants their life to be ruined or choose a whole new set of friends and circumstances. Sometimes people have work like salesmen, for instance. Salesmen often can't just up and quit drinking. This, this brings them revenue. They can change jobs, I guess, but some people love it. So what's more important? How do you want to weigh this out? Talk to the people you love. There are, there, you can watch One Little Pill from Claudia Christian, which you know kind of introduces the family to what this all is, or her TED Talk. She was on, the, uh, po- she was on my podcast too, uh, yeah. season two or three. Yeah. So, and then she has her TED Talk that is How I Quit Drinking Alcohol. And so it takes away a lot of the stigma. It takes away uh, the, some of the ideas that lay people might think that it is a cult. It's not. <laughs> but some people are afraid or sometimes it's just not a good fit. Their philosophy differs or right. they don't find a good sponsor. So there are a lot of reasons why it's not a fit. But I will say one caveat. I would not go to an AA meeting and talk about this because, because I respect someone's hard fought sobriety. I respect that. And I would never suggest someone start drinking. I'll give this a try. No, if you can get to to sobriety in your way and it's palatable and you can do it great. But I do support the idea of free will. We have a pill now. It's 78% effective. You don't have to feel shame. You don't have to feel like a failure. This pill will help you make decisions and make it easier. And it's not that it ruins the rush or makes wine awful or whatever. Some people have different responses, but most people report that it they just lose interest and they're able to leave a half a glass of wine at dinner and walk away and not feel like they have to finish it, you know, chug it down before you leave, get your money's worth. You don't have that anymore. That goes away. What about people who have use with drugs and and other substances? How does that play into this conversation and this program? So for our program, as I looked at people and worked with people, I realized there were some exemptions that we had to take. And that was people who had concurrent drug use because alcohol only makes that situation worse. Mm -hmm. People who had a lot of medications, Mm -hmm. alcohol doesn't help that. People who have active or undiagnosed extreme things of crazy making and mental health, right? That unstable environment and, and people who had medical issues. If you have kidney issues or right. something else that, that is important. And then last but not least, it's not recognized by the court system. So those people who have had trouble with the law, DWIs or whatever, domestic violence charges, then alcohol would not help that. So any condition that would exas- be exacerbated by alcohol would not be a qualified. So consequently, I look at each and every individual admitted to our program to make sure they're not on opiates because we can't talk about naltrexone because it will kick them out of their pain regimen. There are other drugs though, gladly enough to say there are other drugs that we can use the same way as naltrexone. They're just not as good or as easy to implement, but there are other drugs. Like what? Topiramax is another one or Topamax, Topiramate. Topamax, yep. Zofran is another one in microdoses. Baclofen is the go-to drug in France. However, you have to take it three three times a day and titrate up to a to a level that works for you and your drinking. But it's it's the go-to option in France. Uh, We also have gabapentin, and -hmm. I've had clients on that, so it's helped a little bit. You have to take at least six hundred milligrams or more. You have to talk to your doctor about all of that. And then we have the anti-craving drug Camprol, another one that helps for cravings. And so there are, and you would have to go and talk to your doctor about what's right. Right. And and everybody in the program probably has a physician that they're working with, I'm assuming. Yes. If they're on naltrexone, they have a, a naltrexone physician. Very few people can go to their normal primary care physician because they don't know about this. They always say, take it in the morning. That's it. I even had a psychiatrist once. And of course, this is his you know, wheelhouse. He knows medications, right? That's what he does. And when I suggested he took it later in the day, he take his pill later, other than earlier in the morning, there was a dramatic change in his, in his ability to moderate and make good, good decisions for himself. And that's incredible. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've had to, you know, I got, you know, as I said, I got sober in a very orthodox, so to speak way. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I needed, right? I tried, I really tried (laughs) 
I tried to moderate my drinking. Uh, did not go well. Yeah. Never works on one's own, by the way. Moderate drinking is rare for someone to titrate themselves down or learn what does moderate drinking mean. Out in the populace, I've discovered, you know, responsible drinking means sitting at home in my chair, getting trashed and not driving. That's not our definition. <laughs> right, right. So you redefine, right. You redefine what's what's responsible. And, and you know, the way that I think it's like, for me, it's like having one cheese it is just, I'd rather have none. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like that. It's just like, it's exactly it, that craving. I, I don't want to think about that craving over and over again, but that's that's my experience. What I what I learned that I think was very helpful for me and, and any of my chatter or judgments was uh, I learned to think about the situation. If one of my children had a drinking problem and they couldn't get sober for whatever the reason was. And there were these alternatives, right? So do I want as, as a mother, do I want a world where there's no alternative? And that one thing, even if it worked for me, is not working for my child, right? And when I put it into that lens, if it's my kid, I'm like, yeah, do whatever you got to do. I don't care what you have to do. I don't care if you have to sew an extra limb on him, right? Like just save his <laughs> life. And, and so, you know, it, when I think about it in, t- in that perspective, I can get clarity on w- what's important is think is as alternatives and people's happiness and finding what they're looking for. And I, I, it's easy to forget, or it's easy to bring in judgment around how I think recovery should look. Yes. What I, this is how I did it. This is how it's always been done. This is how blah, 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 blah. And really, and and sometimes in, in program, it's this, well, I, how much time do you have? Like the comparison, right? How much time do you have? How much the whole point, right? Is to live a happy, fulfilling, joyous life. And when we lose focus, when we, when we get too attached to how many years I have, that's important because it reflects decisions I've made, but it isn't the goal, right? The goal, if I'm doing that and hating my life, then I've failed. The The goal is the joy. And when I put all, when I bake that all in, I go, oh, alternatives that work for other people that they try. Or another thing is, and I had to do this, I needed to try to moderately drink. I needed to try to moderately use cocaine. I needed to try to moderately (laughs) use heroin. I needed those experiences despite their, their danger profile. I needed those experiences to know that I couldn't do it. And I, what's so cool about this is there's this safe place where people get to go and they they get to see for themselves and they get to do it in a group with a counselor. And I think so many people probably try to moderate their drinking, but they're not. The worst thing is if someone can, to me, I know, and I know this sounds terrible, but to stop drinking and not get the recovery. If you get abstinent without doing any of the work, that is miserable. So yep, miserable. That's what you're offering is this you get to you get to change your life and see what works for you and you get to get the recovery piece because that's that's the secret sauce. That's the important piece. The abstinence is just the that's just the starting block. Do you think there's something to be said? So my, what, what I'm thinking is, well, if you have to control your drinking like that, if you have to think it through pre-med, like if it has to be so controlled and, and structured, gosh, maybe you shouldn't be drinking. Like if it's that, and is there any of that? Like if you have to be so careful, does it make sense to do it? No, because we teach within reason and flexibility. Okay. And we talk about that. So in the beginning, you have to be more vigilant than on the other end of this, because over time you adapt to being that drinker, you know what you need to do. So you leave there with skills that you can use the rest of your life without having to come to group unless you want that support. So it's not that you have to track your drinking every day for the rest of your life. It's until it becomes part of you and you've rewired your brain. Yeah. yeah you need to pay attention. Uh, even someone who does not have a problem drinking, like for instance, I've struggled earlier on in my life with drinking. It never was a, that big of a deal. College phase related drinking. I left college. It went away kind of thing. However, yeah. 
when we get that, the more we drink, the more we want to drink. So they're taught that if you drink more than three or four, if five's a binge, uh oh, you know, warning Will Robinson, <laughs> the mm-hmm. lights and the sirens go off. So they have all these stop gaps in between and paying attention and being premeditated. If I have a birthday party coming up, I'm going to eat the whole damn cake, Ashley. I love cake, okay? But do I have it in my house every day? No. Do I buy donuts every day or or cupcakes? I don't because I they called me from the kitchen to come and eat it. So, mm-hmm. But when I do go and do that, I do want to eat that type of thing. I plan for it. Oh, my birthday's on Thursday. I'm going to get carrot cake and then I'm going to you know share it. And so it's planned out sweets. Like yeah. I'm premeditated about a lot of things just because it helps self-regulate. It takes the worry. It takes the anxiety out of, you know, the surprise binge on the bag of donuts. Like that is just not going to happen to me. Right. Cause there, there's a hangover for that as well. Right. Oh yes. Yes. No, I, I, I love that. I, I think these are just things that we, we think through when we're, when we're talking about it, because you know, the, many people attempt to control their drinking before they end up getting sober and they fail at it, which is why they end up getting sober. And so again, I think it's really about having, having options. And what's so cool about, you know, having the option to attempt to moderate is that it's, you know, it's not like, okay, so you know, either you do it this way, you know, our way or the highway. And in a lot of places that that is the case. And I want to kind of wrap with this topic and how this fits in, which is on the whole, it's fair to say that you're pretty passionate about medication assisted treatment, MAT. Yes. As a whole, right? Mm -hmm. So how does Suboxone fit into this space of, you know, of medication assisted treatment you don't use it in the same way. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what Suboxone is, but how do you, how, where, where does that place into the use of medication for addiction? I used to work in methadone clinics for about a year and a half and had lots of clients and experience with that, worked very closely with the doctor. And what, what is different about those types of replacement therapies That's very different because Suboxone is a partial agonist. So you get on that to reduce the craving. So you don't go back to heroin use or prescription drug use. And same with methadone, very potent, very powerful drugs that fill receptors. It's a full-on agonist. So it replaces the drug and allows you to be functional. It allows you to function in society. Naltrexone does not do that. Naltrexone is completely opposite. It's an antagonist drug, which means it fills the receptors, but it doesn't cause, it doesn't replace alcohol. It merely acts, and I always say this, it's like a condom for the brain. It protects the brain from alcohol so that you still have everything's intact, everything's working fine, but you this is an option. It doesn't have to be taken every day if you're not drinking every day. It doesn't replace alcohol. It merely reduces the effect of alcohol. And I would even say it takes away, you don't have the euphoria. I'm very careful not to say those words that would that would trigger someone from, oh no, this not for me. Because that's not really what it does. Every client I've had, just about bar none, it says, I no, I still like having my glass of Chardonnay, but it I just lose interest. Hmm. They still taste it. They still feel it's nice and it's still nice to have with dinner, but they just lose interest in it. And that's far easier to face than you're not going to get high and it's going to be terrible and all, you know, you just awfulizing it. So I really work in that gray space and I really use words that are like, we don't limit our drinking. We, nobody limits their drinking in moderation. We set goals because we want to reach for goals. We don't want to defy a limit. So right. we make sure we're speaking in that po- terms of positive psychology at all times so that people want to, to do what's right for themselves. You engender that through the brains, the mindset work that we do, and the flipping the reframing for them what this means and what the intention of enjoying alcohol in a group is about. It, because so many people come in on a mission. Like if I don't drink this, you know, 32 beers, what's the point? Right. So we have to we have to undo that and start looking at the greater part of how do I take good care of myself. Now with naltrexone that helps with cravings it's like the, does it help for alcohol rather um does it help with any other types of cravings or any other is, is it used in any other capacity? Yes, in microdoses it's used for uh, multiple sclerosis to help with oh effects of that in microdoses. It's also used under the name of a different drug called Concrave for food addiction. 
because moderation is, is much like what we have to do with food addiction. They must learn to moderate because you can't stop eating, you'll die. So moderation is the only treatment for food addiction. So we use, we borrow a page from them. And we also learn that if I want to moderate this, this toxin, this toxic substance, mm -hmm. then this is the only way to use it. And I think if we would go ahead and educate people earlier on, freshman year, college, high school, seniors, that you can drink. You can drink whatever you want, but you need to know that there's an end point. Not what I learned. Go drink and it's a, there's no Let's limit. Nobody it. tells you yeah. just get drunk, keep going, right? There's right, right. Have goals. No one ever told me there's, there's an end point. Right. You have a few and you're done. I think if I'd have known that going into it, I may still have abused it. I would have known like after I, oh, after I have kids and I'm responsible and all that, then I need to back off, but that, that seed was never planted. And that's what I want to do. Plant that seed. Like if you're going to be young and beautiful often we'll have young, younger people in the group. It's like, well, yeah, you're young and beautiful and your body can metabolize that right now, but wait till you're on the other end of things. It's not going to be that case. So once I plant the seed, you're always going to know this information. Yes. And as you age, it's going to become more and more prevalent and important. And you're going to remember what you're learning here. Yes. I love it. I love it. Michelle, it's amazing. And uh, thank you for being here and, and sharing your story and this information with us. It's so important to get alternatives out there so that people know there are lots of ways to get help and whatever way they need is fine and, and good. So with your program is a moderation management program called Health Balance at Lion Rock Recovery. And people can go online and find that information at lionrockrecovery.com and ask about Health Balance program. Are there any other places you suggest people? I know you mentioned Claudia Christensen. Are there any other places you should you would suggest people go if they're curious about this topic and want to just learn a little bit more before contacting someone? Yeah, there, there are two websites I would recommend. The SinclairMethod.org is another one and Alcohol Recovery Medicine. And that's run by a colleague of mine called Dr. John Umhau. He has a lot of things to read. He has a good podcast on there. You can listen up front about his philosophy and what he knows. And I've learned a lot from him over the years as well as to what it does to the body and, and why we do actually need to moderate our intake. Anything toxic, sugar for that matter, we need to moderate it. So the more we learn moderation, the stronger we become, the healthier we can become as human beings and, and we can live together peacefully and healthfully. And that's really what we want in this day and age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Much appreciated. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering over 70 weekly online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs or alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.